My name is Manny Karoudis and I'm a former New South Wales policeman turned investigative reporter with a passion for missing persons cases. I'm here to quickly tell you about our True Crime Australia podcast, The Missing. In this series, I look at old missing persons cases which have all gone cold in an attempt to try and uncover new information which could help see these missing people reunited with their loved ones or any form of clue that could bring these families closure. The Missing is available now wherever you get your podcasts and early and ad-free on Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts. Sam wasn't averse uh, to a jar or two of ale and rarely uh, went unrefreshed. They took the body into the hotel and propped it up against the bar. Uh, one local commented that uh, it was the first time they'd seen Sam in a pub without a beer in his hand. I'm Jen Kelly from the Herald Sun and this is In Black and White, a podcast about some of Australia's forgotten characters. Today we'll share the story of Sam Knott, a gold prospector who earned a place in Victoria's drinking history as the star of one of our best-known advertising campaigns more than a century ago. It all began when Sam Knott was working as a gardener at a pub in the Upper Yarra, where he was repeatedly paid the same one-pound note once a week, which he then returned to the cash register to pay his weekly drinking tab. One day, a man visiting the hotel saw Sam standing at the bar before lunchtime and mentioned that Sam seemed to be enjoying his beer, even though it was before noon. That's when Sam Nott apparently uttered those immortal words, I allus has one at eleven. The visitor took Sam's photo standing at the bar, and that photo, with Sam Knott's legendary line, became the basis of a long-running ad campaign by Carlton Brewery. Sam Knott's story is told in the Melbourne edition of the wonderful Grave Tales series of books, which we've regularly featured on this podcast. The Grave Tales books are written by Helen Goltz and Chris Adams, and Chris is here with us today to tell us more about Sam Knott's story. Welcome back to the podcast, Chris. It's been a while. Thanks, Jen. Good to be here. Now, let's talk first about this very famous poster. I remember seeing it even as a tiny little kid when my dad took me to pubs around Victoria. Sometimes you'd even see it on the wall of people's homes. I remember seeing it as a poster, sometimes as a mirror. What about you? What are your memories of the poster? Uh, I can remember it um, as a young bloke when I started going to places where they actually sold ale. And it always intrigued me because this strange sentence, I always, all us, uh, spelled A-L-L-U-S, has one, W-A-N, at 11. And there he is with a rather large beer in his hand. And I I used to think it was terrific. In fact, I can remember mum and dad, uh, because I grew up in Melbourne, mum and dad um, taking my sister and I to Walhalla, which is up in the area in behind Maui and Tarelgan and those places, um, where... He spent most of his life, this man that we now know as Sam Knott, uh, taken in that photograph. He worked in um, around uh, Walhalla, those areas. He came out here, um, first of all, because of gold, like so many people did come to this country in the early days. And, and that's kind of where he lived. And I always remember how rugged uh, and um, in a funny sort of a way, because of the road driving in um, was so steep, how scary that area was. <laughs> Now, I'm sure that 98% of our audience are familiar with the picture, the photo that we're talking about, but for the rest of us, for the rest of our listeners, can you just describe the poster that we're talking about? Sure. 
It's a photograph uh, of a chap dressed in what looked like jeans and, and a shirt tucked in with a belt, uh, leaning against a, uh, a counter um, which has a, a smiling man's face on the end of it and Carlton Ale written there. Um, and this is the fellow Sam Knott, uh, who declares that he always has one at 11. I mean, I'm sure uh, anybody who's been into a pub uh, in the last 100 years in, uh, in Melbourne has seen it. When you look at him, he's just quite a character, isn't he? You know, he's got this big bushy beard, he's propped on the bar, and he's dressed like gold miners of the era would have been dressed. That's sort of part of the attraction, isn't it? It is. And I mean, that's when I was thinking about why uh, the photograph is what it is. There are probably two good reasons is that he's dressed like every other tin miner or gold miner or worker uh, in that part of the world. So there's that identification thing, you know, it's good enough for me, it's good enough for you. And the other thing is, of course, that the beer in he's got in his hand is large. And this is probably about the last thing that they, the customer sees before he walks to the, to the bar to buy a beer. Uh, suggestion, get a big one. <laughs> so he was a miner originally, but he wasn't a miner by the time this photo was taken. What, what are the circumstances leading up to this photo? Well, he worked really uh, around hotels where he was the fellow who looked after the horses, uh, rouseabout they call him. Um, he uh, had, as I said before, come for the, for the gold, um, got itchy feet, uh, went to a place called Aberfeldy, right up in the Alpine high forest country, uh, where he adopted a more settled life as a rouseabout at a mountain hotel. Uh, he had the perfect disposition for that. It's reported to have always been ready to serve the needs of man and beast. Uh, as no doubt the uh, the hotel advertised. Um, he wandered around a fair bit. He ended up uh, as the gardener at McVeigh's Upper Yarra Hotel at Walsh's Creek. And this is where um, something of the character of the man started to, to show up. Um, the publican of the hotel where he worked was a fellow by the name of Paddy McVeigh, who with his wife was the life and soul uh, of the establishment fre frequented by everyone from bearded diggers uh, to callow youths, um, as the, the blurb for the hotel of that day said. Um, Australian cattlemen down from the ranges, uh, timber blokes, um, easygoing bushwalkers, they all uh, went to the pub that Paddy owned and where this fellow Sam worked. So um, it becomes clear as this uh, yarn unfolds that Sam wasn't averse uh, to a jar or two of ale and rarely uh, went unrefreshed. Uh, so he came to an arrangement with Paddy, the owner of the pub, that he should be paid one pound a week and found. In other words, this is his, his wage, um, is uh, a bed, a roof over his head, um, all his meals plus one pound a week. This is where it gets a bit curious. Uh, the one pound uh, on top of his meals and, uh, and keep um, was to cover the cost of what he drank um, during the week. Uh, and it, it was a really weird situation. The first week uh, of work, at the end of that week, Paddy handed Sam uh, a crisp one-pound note, um, the old money, as we call it, <laughs> uh, which Sam then immediately handed back to him as payment for his consumption of ale over the course of the previous week. <laughs> uh, so so the, 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 he had the, the pound note in his hand for a minute, uh, then he gave it straight back to Paddy. Uh, Paddy apparently was happy with this arrangement. Um, the end of the next week, he handed Sam the very same note uh, that he'd been given back to him uh, the week before from Sam. Sam handed it straight back again. Uh, and this curious ritual went on for over a year, uh, the note having its brief circulation every week. Um, and, uh, and the one-pound note uh, continued to be 
traded back and forwards. <laughs> and Sam was so attached to this particular one-pound note that Paddy actually had to put it in a special spot in the in the till, didn't he? Yeah, so that it wouldn't be accidentally given to somebody as change uh, because this was the pound note. <laughs> Now, who was the man who came to the hotel and took this famous photo? There was uh, one day uh, a young man um, arrived at the hotel with a camera. And I guess in those days, we're talking 1906 now, there wouldn't have been um, a lot of cameras around. Uh, This fellow uh, was standing at the bar and he noticed uh, Sam was there as well, having his pre-lunch beer. He's one at 11. So the young man started talking to Sam about uh, about him having his beer and Sam then embellished the line that we see on the photograph from I always has one at 11 uh, and then he added it's a habit that's got to be done because if I don't have one at 11 I always has 11 at one. <laughs> so do you think Sam actually said something along those lines or was that something that was added by the advertising masterminds later? Yes, I'm certain it was. Uh, <laughs> I always have always has one at eleven may have been original, but I think the other was probably added by the added by the um, uh, the people that uh, Carlton Breweries. A troubled young woman, her evil parents. We never had any issues between us. Has justice been done? Uh, I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. And do we know what this man's association was with Carlton Brewery? No, um, not really. Uh, there's no way to find out um, uh, whether he was, in fact, uh, employed by them, um, how the uh, the photograph got from him to Carlton, uh, what the deal was, whether he was paid for it, how much changed hands, should Sam have got some of it. All of that we don't know too much about. All we do know is that you can still see the photo of Sam in some pubs today. Um, and so it's got to be one of the most successful campaigns in Australian advertising history um, mm-hmm. from 1906 to now. Mm-hmm. And so it didn't take long after the photo was taken before it became the heart of Carlton Brewery's new advertising campaign? Yeah, apparently not. Um, I don't know how long, but I know that the, the photo was certainly still around in the, uh, in the 30s um, because when there was a, uh, a movement to stop drinking uh, in Victoria in the 30s, one of the sides in that argument used this photograph uh, with Sam um, holding uh, two cups with tea and coffee written on the side of them rather than what he would normally be holding and the line underneath it, will it ever come to this? <laughs> it, it very nearly did come to that. I mean, almost a million Victorians voted in the first uh, of the two referendums on the evils of grog and the majority was only small. It was 553,000 to 418,000 against it. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it went close. <laughs> it's hard to imagine. It sure is. And, and why do you think that this photo and this little ditty resonated so well with beer drinkers? I think it's because, um, as I said earlier, that the this is kind of the, the, the person that they're targeting. This is the uh, the image of who they want their drinkers to think that they're, they're represented by. You know, it's, it certainly worked in that sense. 
<laughs> it strikes me as it was all also giving permission to have a drink earlier in the day rather than having to wait till knockoff time, for example, five o'clock or six o'clock before you have your, your first beer. Why not have a beer before lunch at 11? Well, I think lots of us did over the years um, when, when uh, times were good uh, and uh, the, uh, the, the long lunch was around. <laughs> I'm, I'm certain that people had uh, a beer or two before lunch. Um, but that, that's the question he's asking you, I suppose. Now, what happened to Sam in the end? Sam uh, worked with Paddy at McVie's Hotel uh, in the serenity of the Upper Yarrow Valley. On the 23rd of May in 1907, he managed to get a piece of food that he's eating stuck in his throat, and he died as a result. Uh, I don't know what the food was. Um, there are some suggestions around that it was a piece of a bone, um, but it was fatal uh, for Sam. He died as a result of it. Uh, and from this point on, there are a number of versions as to what happened from here. And what are the versions that you're aware of? Uh, version one is that Paddy McVeigh, where he'd been working for the, at least the last year, uh, had become fairly fond of old Sam. He chipped in by providing wood from boxes in which provisions arrived at the hotel to make Sam a coffin. Uh, curious timber to use. It would have uh, seen Sam sent on his way in a coffin carrying labels like Billy T., uh, or herrings in tomato sauce, or store away from heat. <laughs> but it gets stranger from here. Um, again, uh, versions differ, but essentially the getting of Sam to the cemetery uh, was fairly unorthodox, regardless of which version you choose to accept. Uh, version one of this part of the story is that Paddy organised two local blokes, George Stackpool and John McGinn, to cart the body to Warburton for burial. Uh, but when the cortege was on the way, Somewhere not too far from the Westburn Hotel, the coffin fell off the dray and smashed to pieces. Now, maybe as someone suggested, McGinn and uh, Stockpool had had 11 at 11 as they took the body into the hotel and propped it up against the bar. Uh, one local commented that uh, it was the first time they'd seen Sam in a pub without a beer in his hand. <laughs> um, apparently, the, the coffin must have been patched up and the funeral cortege continued to uh, Westburn Cemetery. That's one version. The other is that a bloke called Bill the Wagoner, a local cartage carrier, uh, was contracted to take the body to the cemetery, apparently without incident. Uh, yet another said it was a rainy day and by the time Stackpool and McGinn got Sam to the cemetery, all the mourners had left. Um, it's a story that makes sense because it may explain what happened next. Somewhere amongst all this, a doctor must have seen Sam as there once was a death certificate. It was destroyed by a fire in 1927. Uh, the details, however, have been saved. On the death uh, certificate, Sam's religious denomination is listed as Church of England. And yet, uh, while no one knows where Sam is buried, it's fairly widely held that he is in the Roman Catholic section. <laughs> On the death certificate, George Stackpool is listed as the funeral director. That Sam is believed to be buried in the wrong section is a result that might be expected from two men who'd imbibed considerably along the way. And as a final confusing element, Sam's name on the death certificate is spelt incorrectly, N-O-T-T without the K. <laughs> that was probably a pretty common result at the time, wasn't it, for there to be errors on the death certificate? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, it's he, uh, his name um, and the details are just so confusing when you're trying to follow this through. 
Yeah, and it doesn't surprise me because this this story has presumably been told time and time again and usually at the bar of one of these pubs in the Yarra Valley. So no wonder there are embellishments and and various stories of what happened in the end. Yeah, and there's there's one last one, and that is that um, uh, there was a a, a wonderful carved um, figure of Sam um, out the front of the Warburton Hotel, uh, which was stolen. Um, so even right to, uh, you know, the, th- the only thing that we have that sort of commemorated Sam uh, was, was knocked off by thieves. So it's, <laughs> it's a very, very curious uh, story. And what happened to McVeigh's Hotel in the end? Um, well, it was burnt down as so many old hotels were in 1939. Um, any remains after the fire are now covered by the waters of the Upper Yarra Dam as well uh, to make it um, doubly impossible to find out if there's anything left. Uh, there was also a wonderful carved statue immortalising Sam in timber outside the variously named Westburn, Sam Knot and Warburton Hotel. That's the same place, just had various names. Um, but uh, when I spoke to them not that long ago, I uh, found out that the, um, the statue, the carved statue of Sam has been stolen. Apparently, though, uh, you can still see Sam where he belongs in the bar. I think that was a little plug that they might have asked me to put in. <laughs> Go have a pint with Sam at 11. <laughs> okay. And, and what about Sam's gravestone? Can people go and visit his grave? There is no grave. Uh, well, I mean, there is, but, but it's probably unmarked. Uh, and so uh, we don't know whether he's in the Catholic or the Church of England. Um, we don't know whether he's, there's a headstone or not. I don't, I'm pretty certain there isn't. Uh, if there was, we don't know whether it has a K on the front of not or not. Um, so... I, it appears that he's in the in the cemetery, but no one quite knows exactly where. And again, not helped by that fire in 1927 when all the cemetery records uh, were destroyed. Mm. And and the poster, I mean, it's still it's in the National Archives of Australia, so it will it never be forgotten. No. Do you still see it around occasionally? Uh, when I'm in Victoria is where I see it most in some of the little pubs that uh, you tend to find yourself in at the end of the day. Uh, yeah, I've seen it a few times. And Chris, what did you enjoy most about writing this story? Um, I think it is that that uh, Australians have such an irreverence towards some aspects of life, um, and numbers of them are, uh, are dealt with in this story. Uh, just the um, uh, the imagery that's created uh, with some of the stories that are told about Sam, what he did, and and what eventually happened to him. Now, we should mention that this is from the Melbourne edition of the Grave Tales series. Is that your most recent book? It is, yes, out just um, uh, in the middle of last year. It is uh, from the Melbourne book, another one uh, on the way now uh, called The Scenic Rim, which is that area in behind the Gold Coast uh, in Queensland, which we're currently doing at the moment. Oh, wonderful. Well, thank you for coming in and sharing another great story with us, Chris. Pleasure, Jen. Always good to be on. Thanks for listening. This has been In Black and White, a podcast about some of Australia's forgotten characters. Written and hosted by me, Jen Kelly, produced by John T. Burton and edited by Andrea Tees-Evanson. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd love you to leave a five-star rating on whatever platform you're listening on. Even better, leave a review. Any comments or questions, please email me at inblackandwhite at heraldsun.com.au. Any clarifications or updates to stories will appear in the show notes for each episode. And to get notified when each new episode comes out, make sure you subscribe to the podcast feed.
access a world of true crime podcasts on Crimex Plus, where award-winning journalists take a deep dive into unsolved cases. Every week, we're waking up to a dead woman, a dead mother, sister, auntie, grandmother. It's not good enough. From the team that brought you The Teacher's Pet, Shadow of Doubt and Dying Rose, unlock early, ad-free and bonus content from brand new series and flagship shows such as I Catch Killers with Gary Jubilin. One was shot in the mouth and I thought he was dead. Another one had been shot with a shotgun and I got the overspray. Search for Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts to start digging deep into the world of true crime.